Greetings, all, and welcome back to I'm Frickin' Lonely. How about you? Staying connected in the time of COVID. I'm your host, Sheila Nall, still coming to you from the room above my garage in Princeton, New Jersey. I want to thank you for joining me as I continue to explore the impact of the pandemic on people's lives before, during, and after the pandemic, how they've changed and what they've learned about themselves and about what's truly important. It feels like the pandemic is on the wane. At least most impactful and constraining aspects of the response to it are behind us. So people are beginning to really focus on what the new normal may look like. Today, we're jumping back into the world of architecture by welcoming my guest, Marilee Meacock. Marilee is a partner at KSS Architects, a 90-person firm with offices in Princeton, New York, and Philadelphia. Marilee's practice has been very broad over her decades in the industry. She is a champion of creating architecture and spaces for neurodiverse and underrepresented populations through an understanding of the psychology of the built environment. I've worked with Marilee, so I can state from experience that she is a strong leader and mentor and understands the need for balance between the professional and personal aspects of her team members. I'm not sure she looks out for herself in that same way. <laughs> uh, but it'll be interesting to hear how the pandemic has impacted her ability to do her work and, and face the past two years. So welcome, Marilee. You know, how would, would you like to give the listeners some additional background? Sure. Um, hi, Sheila. It's great to be here. You know, to describe myself, I'm an architect, I'm a planner, I'm a single mom, I have three boys and a dog, I'm a daughter, I'm a, I'm a sister. I come from the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, I went to Penn State, um, but after that I moved to New Jersey. I really liked the uh, diversity of people and cultures, access to nature, uh, access to the cities, access to culture. That's the great thing about where we live, right? Mm-hmm. I love it. I love New Jersey. I do too. I've said this before. I'm, I'm happy to be here. People misunderstand how great New Jersey well, is. Well, we're lucky. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've actually appreciated that it's a secret, <laughs> although it's the most highly populated state in the country, <laughs> most densely populated. But yeah. Anyway. Like so close to everything, airports, cities, you know, it's great. So anyway, um, my dad came from Boston. He was an engineer and... He was vibrant, he was an executive, and he passed in his 60s from Parkinson's, which obviously has an impact on uh, our family and, you know, our abilities to move ahead. My mom was from Iowa, she was a homemaker and an artist, and interesting, she moved here to help me with my kids, because I'm a single mom, and she now, actually, she's 82, and she trades stocks every single day. That's she's amazing. part of all these <laughs> stock clubs, she's a super interesting lady, very smart. My grandparents... Traveled the country in an Airstream trailer in the 60s on oh, their that's retirement. That's so cool. Did you go with them? No, no. I was, a, I was a baby at you the were, time. Oh, yeah. But Thanksgivings were always like looking at their travel pictures. And <laughs> I forgot you're that much younger than I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they were, they were inspirational to our family. Um, I have three brothers. They all have kids. They all live in Pennsylvania. And then I have three children. My oldest son is an electrical engineer at IBM. He works in Poughkeepsie, New York. My middle son manages a gas station and lives nearby. And then my youngest son is headed, headed also to Penn State. Yay. Uh, <laughs> Alma mechan- mater. Yeah, uh, we are. Um, for mechanical engineering. So he's heading there in the fall. I'm super excited for him. That's great. Yeah, that's a really uh, great choice of career. Yeah. <laughs> that's what Dan is, right? Yeah, yep. we have my husband is a mechanical engineer, too, and he loves it. Yeah, so... You know, uh, consistently people have looked back at the beginning of the pandemic and it seems like ancient history, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, what? 
Um, also, I guess it's getting to be kind of old news, you know, maybe better left unremembered. And then, you know, we want to leave it in our rear view, leave it far behind. But you had some really unique um, anecdotes, I think, as far as, as your remembrances of the beginning of all of this. Yeah, I mean, it was it was similar to 9-11, you know, some of the memories were sort of indelible in our minds uh, at the time. I remember seeing a TikTok video, and I love TikTok, um, <laughs> and it was the construction of the Chinese hospital in 10 days, and I was like, wow, what? How they're so innovative, why are they doing that? You know, why are they building this building in 10 days? Uh, and at the time, I didn't realize what, was, what we were headed for. And no, then, none of us did. Yeah. <laughs> we were all in denial. <laughs> we were. And then maybe a week or so before the shutdown, I was meeting with a mayor to discuss a theater expansion, and he was, he was sick. He had the flu, and there was antibacterial cream on the conference room table, and I thought, well, that's kind of strange. Like, I wonder what that's all about. And <laughs> um, the next, you know, we were at, it was a late-night meeting, and I got home late, and then I had to get up real early to drive to Ohio. My son's girlfriend was in the Big Ten track championships in Ohio. And uh, while I was there, I ended up getting really sick, and uh, I had to drive home. <laughs> was it COVID? Um, it wasn't. I don't know. Oh, you I, don't even know. I don't okay. know what it was, but it was right around the time when everyone was starting to lock right, down. And, right. you know, I kind of wonder if it was because it was pretty severe. Um, but driving home seven hours, you know, feeling mm. like you have the flu is the greatest thing. And then the last experience that I can remember is my son went to University of Illinois and he came home for spring break and he returned by air to Chicago on March 22nd. Oh my gosh. And everybody knows, you know, right around that time we were definitely shutting down and he caught the only flight available. And uh, I think they had a flight crew of like six to eight people, you know, several pilots and several crew. And they made the announcement on the flight, welcome to your private jet. My son was the only passenger on the whole plane. <laughs> That's so. hilarious, but it's disturbing at the same time. It'd be really, uh, it'd be a very creepy feeling, I think, to be the only passenger. passenger. It was like, what is going on? And they said they hadn't seen anything like that since 9-11, mm-hmm. you know, when they grounded all the flights. So. Gosh, did he get free cocktails and extra snacks? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. We had to sit in his assigned seat. Okay. <laughs> which wasn't in first class. Oh gosh, that's hilarious. So, but it was, you know, there were, it was beautiful during the pandemic. I mean, there was quiet, there were there wasn't air noise, especially being in New Jersey, we experienced a lot of air noise here. Um, vehicle noise on the highways, which also, you know, I live nearby, you know, the New Jersey Turnpike. You know, it was so quiet. It was like a snow day. Uh-huh. So I actually... <laughs> I like that characterization. Yeah. <laughs> I actually kind of enjoyed yeah. that part of it. And now it, things are starting to get noisy again. You know, you can see the flights and you can, you can hear the traffic and things like that. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. so there were, well, everybody seems to agree there were definitely upsides. Yeah. To all of that. I, you know, I, I you know, experienced just, uh, a lot of upsides. As we adjusted our thinking and wrapped our brains around it. And, uh, you know, of course, we thought it was going to be over so soon, but it was wishful thinking. Yeah. We had no idea. (laughs) We kept planning as partners of my firm. We would meet twice a week. We had these very strategic meetings, and every week we kept saying, maybe by mid-April and maybe by mid-May, and then it just kept extending, and then eventually we just said, we don't know when this is going to end. Let's stop thinking about it and Mm -hmm. just plan our world yeah, but at least you were already set up for Zoom so that you had that going for you. So, you know, you had said um, 
well, I guess let's build on that. You were talking about the leadership and how you, you got together and, and did have to, to plan on how to move forward. And, you know, you're a partner in a 90-person firm. That's a lot of people. Of course, it wasn't 90 people at the beginning of the pandemic. It continued to grow. But, um, you know, how was the firm, how did it adjust to the lockdowns and the quarantines and, um, you know, continue to, you know, to strive for good design and build your client base and serve your clients, all those kinds of things that, you know, your service industry, I don't even know, having retired, you know, before the pandemic, you know, how I would have managed, and I mean, literally manage uh, a team under those circumstances, but you guys clearly did and did it successfully. So can you just yeah, sure. shed some light on that? <laughs> so um, how'd you do that? Well, we were actually... Uh, serendipitously, we were in the process of building a lot of firm structures for growth mm-hmm. long before the pandemic came. So we were building firm leadership structures, we were building cross-market structures, cross-cultural structures, and then a communication calendar that would tie all these structures together and give everyone a voice and give uh, platforms and venues for you know how to collaborate and communicate. A communication calendar, what is that? It's a calendar of firm events mm-hmm. that we, you know, we have Just shared with everybody. And yeah, so we have um, uh, cultural events as well as firm practice events. Let's just say, and um, we've had these for a long time. You know, twenty years or so. We've had these ways of connecting within the firm, and having that balance of cultural and practice events. You know, you're sort of dealing with people as people, and then you're dealing with them as practitioners, um, has really allowed us to build a strong community. And because we were already building, building these structures, translating them to Zoom was almost effortless. Within, within a week, we had completely transferred everything onto Zoom. We're already a multi-office firm, so you know, we already collaborate a lot online before the pandemic, but this, you know, it was almost seamless for us because we had everything kind of in place. So you were already doing pinups and that kind of thing via Zoom? We, well, we were doing meetings via teleconference. Mm-hmm. We weren't doing things via Zoom per se. So we started picking up, we picked up both Zoom and Teams. Oh, Teams, okay. And we used both. And we've been always, as I mentioned before, we were highly focused on building cultural bonds in the firm um, through, like, staff, you know, all staff meetings, which happen on Monday morning. We have a Wednesday seminar series that is uh, distributed throughout the firm so that different people have speaking parts and responsibilities for that. And then we have a happy hour. And our happy hour was always on a Friday afternoon. Now we're actually transitioning that to a Thursday. Are people taking Fridays off now? Well, because of our (laughs) hybrid environment we're three days in two days off okay uh two days out of the office but we're actually still you know still working so a lot of people thought that friday would be a good day to be remote mm-hmm. so it's it's harder to do the remote happy hours the zoom happy hours we did do it for a year mm-hmm. and we ended up using like online games and things to engage the audience and things like that but after a year i was kind of like okay i'm hanging up the keys this is really hard to do right yeah the novelty um, wore off and uh, <laughs> yeah it just became probably a chore more than something to look forward to because you were zooming all day long anyway in meetings and yeah. that kind of thing to continue that it's like oh god kill me now we we were <laughs> and we did a we did an online wine tasting 
holiday party, uh-huh. and that was fun. That's cool. But it really so you was. you shipped wine to people's homes? Yeah, we oh. shipped it to 90 homes. Wow. We had, <laughs> we had the wine shipped from California. It was really interesting and really fun. And we did a dance party on Zoom. I mean, you know, we, we tried all these things. And I think one of the things that we learned was, you know, cover many scales, like figure out how to engage the audience, figure out how to build small groups of people who are working on problems and then they're reporting back to the bigger audience and assign those responsibilities and voices. And when they can bring that information back, they're part of the community. They're engaged. You know, mm-hmm. they're engaged in the topic at hand. And so we were doing that both for the practice as well as for the, the cultural opportunities that we had within the firm Mm -hmm. but it was you know that key is interactive I mean that's a key to a good meeting anyway is to make it interactive Mm -hmm. um you know people learn more they they get more out of it when they're actually contributing to that meeting yeah instead of a just a passive listener receiving a participant right when they're a participant they gain a lot more out of that and so I think we we've learned to do this really well, and we've taken it on the road with our clients. We do small and large group engagement with our clients online. We've held community meetings where we've engaged neighbors and artists and community members around the design of buildings and mm-hmm. what, are, what are they looking for. Um, and it's it's been really great. You know, it's been great. And, you know, we've used a lot of new tools. We use Miro and Mural, which are two... Platforms. Miro, M-I-R-O, and then M-U-R-A-L. And they're online tools that we use to trade artwork and ideas and shredding. You know, we've done a lot of shredding in the firm where we crowdsource ideas and create, you know, creative thought. People come from different backgrounds and they bring different ideas. And it, it really makes the design much stronger and more relevant to what's going on in the world today. Yeah. So... Were there certain project types that um, were able to, you know, still be built and designed during the pandemic? Because, you know, I know, you know, my realm was more office and it seems like nobody knew what the office was going to be. So what were the project types that mostly you were focused on during that period? Well, um, our office does learning commerce and community projects. And a lot of the learning projects went on hold during the pandemic. So all of our K-12 and our higher ed projects were on hold because oh, okay. the clients were kind of questioning, well, what are we doing? You know, are we going to be online forever? Are we hybrid? What are we doing? Right. They had they had too much else to worry yeah, about. Yeah, they were like not worried about building new buildings. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So our, and our office, same thing, our workplace markets were the same thing. A lot of clients were like, well, geez, do we even need workplace anymore? You know? And that's still a question. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> I think we've sort of discovered that you prioritize the built environment around opportunities to collect people and to times when they need to collaborate on mm-hmm. things and when they can inspire each other and those types of things. Okay. So the markets that really took off during the pandemic were actually our distribution markets, manufacturing and distribution. Well, everybody was ordering stuff. Yeah, e- <laughs> e-commerce. You know, right. Oh, my God. We were building e-commerce all over the country, and... Uh, they kept calling, you know, and they're still calling. And we're learning how to do it in uh, new ways. We're learning how to do it in more urban areas to serve closer to the populations that we're serving and multi-story and a lot more complicated and complex projects. So it's really uh, it's really quite interesting. And then also um, green energy and how that 
influences the built product. And, you know, so we're looking at a lot of that as well. Multimodal transportation, you know, so there's a lot of trends that are happening that are making work. They're sort of expediting the pace of the work that's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, probably makes the work a lot more interesting now because it's having it, infusing all these new aspects into it, the, the green aspects. And also even with uh, e-commerce, I would imagine because of the competition for labor, that they're probably infusing distribution centers with more amenity type spaces than they used to. They used to be like rudimentary, grunted out kind of places. What I've heard is that they're becoming a lot more uh, attractive and humane. Humane, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) we actually are using uh, a lot of strategies that we have in the office. One of them is well, Mm -hmm. and it is giving people opportunities to access you know, daylighting and proximity to the bathrooms. And these factories and warehouses of the past were windowless, mean concrete boxes. And, you know, now they're becoming, you know, a lot more colorful and light-filled. And So well is a series of criteria that's that's set out there that you try to aspire to, I guess? Yes. It's a a standard that is, um, you have to certified, well-designed. Mm-hmm. We do have ar- architects and interior designers in the firm who have gone through the training. and, and Well-accredited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it is not only interior, but also exterior urban planning. You know, and it really looks at the human experience from bathrooms to <laughs> city streets um, and how to plan better neighborhoods and, you know, to, to make places that are better for people. Yeah, which uh, kind of brings me to just to ask you quickly about biophilic design, because I know that was something that you were a proponent of, and can you describe what that is? Sure. Um, So my passion in architecture is really to create environments that inspire people and allow them to connect with each other and then allow them to connect with nature. And I think that's sort of the key to human happiness, and human success. And biophilic design is, is a design strategy that takes into account the fact that humans were rooted in nature for many years, you know, caveman days, agrarian, you know, we were agrarian society for a long time. And over time, you know, with the industrialization of society, and now, you know, we're more of a technological society, we are being disconnected from nature. And I think that's causing some of our problems, you know, the things that I'm trying to address and support, um, you know, we're a very complex world, we're, you know, digital and physical, we're at a frenetic pace, where there's increased anxiety, lack of confidence, loneliness, depression, and how can we use architecture to support people in some of those endeavors, and so biophilic design is the premise that if you give people opportunity to connect to nature, that nature has very strong healing powers Mm -hmm. and also gives people the opportunity to kind of become themselves and sort of connect to each other. And they sort of relax and are able to kind of let their guard down and and then interact with others. So is that related to well in any way? I mean, is well sort of the well criteria for building design, does that take into consideration some of the biophilic tenets? I I don't think there's a direct relationship, but I think there are parts of well and parts of other design criteria that use biophilic principles. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, as a part of what you do, and I talked about this earlier when we, I was introducing you, is, is mentoring. And that was one of the questions that you and I talked about a little bit earlier uh, was how do, you, how do you mentor from a distance? How do you onboard people um, and make them feel a part of the firm and appropriately mentored and onboarded and understanding what the firm is all about, how they fit in? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so... I think it's giving people communities, and I had described that earlier, mm-hmm. where you're giving them sort of a daily neighborhood or community that they're part of, and then giving them cross-curricular communities as well, so that they have different touches within the firm, and some of their touches are based on their daily work, and then other touches are based more on their passions, mm-hmm. and so they can explore and research different areas within the firm that, that they maybe want to work on, and collaborate with other people in the firm who may have similar passions. Giving people those neighborhoods gives them sort of a safety net mm-hmm. of um, connections and, and opportunities to collaborate. And, and, and also then, to feel supported. Yeah, to feel supported and to be mentored and, and also uh, to consider their careers and how they might see somebody who's doing something that they're interested in and then maybe they want to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. So it's building those bonds within the firm. And those bonds are both practice-related, but they're also cultural-related. So people's personal lives play a role in how they design. So their interests and their passions, are they interested in food? Are they interested in art? Are they interested in cars? Are they interested in travel? Those things, once you reveal what people might be interested in, then you have like a go-to person when something comes up. You're like, oh, I remember, you know, somebody had an interest in uh, culinary arts and there's this project coming up and it's to build a community kitchen I think that person would really enjoy working on that project mm-hmm. so but n- unless you know that personal piece of information you would never be able to make that connection mm-hmm. so it's, it's finding those like finding those little pieces nuggets of people's personalities and and interests and passions yeah which seems like it'd be so hard to do remotely <laughs> you know it's not but it takes I guess different personality types might be more successful with that than others? I'm not sure. Well, we have a Wednesday seminar. Once a month, we do a Pecha Kucha, which is, it's a triple Pecha Kucha, actually, and there are three presenters, and they can present on any topic they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And we've had all kinds of interesting people renovating their houses, people, different things that they're working on. Um, somebody did something on thermostats and, like, travel to Patagonia or wherever it may be. Those are always, like, super interesting. Um, because What's the... F- term pechacucha pechacucha it's what does uh that mean? It, it's actually in wikipedia if you okay. if you look it up well, um, i will you you know i will <laughs> it's basically our format is i think it's like five slides five minutes oh that's per cool. presentation so it's not it's not an in-depth you know something that people have to prepare for days mm-hmm. it's something that they're really passionate about and they can just kind of grab off their desktop oh, that's so cool that's really yeah cool. and so you learn a lot about people that you know yeah. if you do three of those a month that's you know however many a year, 36 people that you're really learning about in the year. Plus, along with that, you get the happy hours. You get people presenting at the Monday morning meeting, different things at their clubs that they're part of or volunteering activities that they have outside the office or art shows that might be coming up that they're interested in. And you do. You learn a lot about people as if you give them the voice. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the key to giving them the voice. I think the other thing, too, is when uh, we're now – 
coming back to the office in a hybrid environment. And um, so you said three and two, three and two. And we how have are, a, how are people? Are they embracing? Oh, that? it's it's funny. Um, for the most part, people are embracing it. I think people have really missed their yeah. their peers mm-hmm. and um, really get a lot out of the activities that we have at the office. And um, but you know, until we were hybrid, we had only a digital relationship with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And um, when we met them for the first time, we were like, "Wow, you're like taller than a, you're like a foot taller than oh, I that's expected." Hilarious. Or, <laughs> You know, like the, the body language was different than you expect. You know, it's just like oh really weird gosh. to all of a sudden meet these people that you've been working with for two years. That's Same a, thing with clients. I had a client oh that gosh, I met the so other funny. day and he gave me a hug and I'm like, I've been working with you for two years and I've never met you, you know? Gosh, that's um, so funny. It didn't even dawn on me that it should have, but that's so funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's really, it's really interesting. So building that now physical relationship mm-hmm. is kind of where we are in the phase where we are in the firm right now. Mm-hmm. Does anybody still have clothes to wear? <laughs> Are they all coming I think in everyone there? ran out and bought clothing. <laughs> they got their hair done and their nails done. Yeah, it's so funny. So, yep. All I have, I have five pairs of jeans and I just rotate. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I have a lot of flannel pajama bottoms. <laughs> God, I love it. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's really exciting and so fascinating to know. And it just sounds like you guys have really thrived, you know, through all this Again, like I said, you've just grown leaps and bounds. And uh, I don't know, how did you find the people? I think there were a lot of people out there that were looking for jobs. So that was great to have a lot to choose from. I think now that market has turned. And sure. Now there aren't that many people available. And so, you know, we vetted people through interviews. And I think you, in our firm, I think in order to fit in, it's sort of a chemistry. You know, everyone mm-hmm. who's coming in is probably equal capabilities but it's those that we find that chemistry with Mm -hmm. are the ones that end up getting hired because we're building a community right and we want that community to collaborate with our clients just like they collaborate with each other we want them to support each other we don't want people who are gonna um, hide information or not teach others you know we want people who are positive influence on the community Mm -hmm. so I think you can you can pretty much yeah, true team players. <laughs> yeah, you can figure that out yeah. online. That's really great. And yeah, I can't believe how much you've grown. <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's all wonderful to hear. And I wanted to sort of circle back. We started to talk about this a little bit when we were talking about biophilic design, but just sort of your purpose are the things that really um, drive you in in your work. I know that you were somebody, and we already talked about this, who really loves to mentor people, but inspire people. Something that really gives you a sense of purpose? Yeah. um, A lot of the population that I work with on the client side are maybe underrepresented culturally or from a neurodiverse standpoint. Um, Many are, you know, nonverbal or potentially English is their second language. And so in those cases, you have to find architecture that transcends beyond and it transcends to more human requirements rather than cultural you know u.s american requirements sure yeah and um that's when i started looking at biophilic design because nature transcends everybody everybody loves nature Mm -hmm. and architecture that communicates that and communicates transparency and welcome and how do you navigate 
a place? How do you find it? How do you find the door? How do you get in? Allowing people to navigate a building on their own gives them choice in how they navigate a building. Mm -hmm. And if you make it hard for them and they don't know, and there's seven doors and you don't know which one to go in, they're going to be frustrated coming in. Mm -hmm. So you want to kind of like take away all of those impediments and give people that sort of red carpet, come on in and, you know, bring them down in terms of like the atmosphere, let the atmosphere be lively and natural and full of daylight and full of wood and stone and, you know, natural materials and those types of things. And then I think it sort of frames their mood Mm -hmm. so that they can move on with their day and they can do what they need to do in that building, whether it's learn or work or whatever they're there, whatever the purpose that they're there for. True. I mean, no matter what your status in the world, you don't want to walk into a building and immediately feel stress and anxiety because you have no idea where to go. Right. Um, And that is stressful, you know, just for, for any of us. To know that you're at a very basic level caring for, for that, the immediacy of that, reduce the stress, relieve the stress uh, with the decision-making process as you enter a building is a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's really cool. So um, over the course of this period of time, what has been your favorite project, or should I ask? <laughs> I mean, is there one that you're particularly proud of? Um, I think it's probably... We, we built a new campus for Bancroft. They are an organization that serves people uh, with autism and other ne- neurodiversities. And um, it was a pediatric campus, so it included 12 buildings, 95 acres, and it included wow. a community center for the outreach community, you know, so more for a regional community, let's just say. Um, and it housed a school for 250 students and then housing for 75 of those students. And most of those students were teenagers, mm-hmm. and they would move to this place, and then from this place they would actually move out into the group home system. And uh, we worked on that project for probably a good five years, and it was incredibly rewarding and educational experience for us, um, and that's where... I learned a lot of the biophilic, you know, we, we did a lot of research, precedent research, and uh, global research, mm-hmm. and we found, um, and we connected to people all over the world, and to this day are still contacted from people all over the world. We engage and collaborate around designing for people with autism. Mm-hmm. That's phenomenal, and uh, I know that you're well regarded in that arena, and it certainly is something that not only gives you great gratification and satisfaction, but you should be really proud of that as well. So I'm proud of you. Oh, well, <laughs> thank, thank you. It's, you know, it's, Marilee's a star. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mind if I say so. So, uh, you know, one of the things I know about you, um, you know, you throw yourself into your work and, you know, it, but maybe almost to the detriment of throwing yourself into yourself. So maybe talk a little bit uh, about that self-care and uh, maybe the pressures of running a business because you are a partner there. And are you currently now the only female partner or is Pam? Uh, no, we have Mava Donnan. Oh, Mava's a partner. Yeah. Oh, yeah, good. Congrats, Mava. She's a wonderful <laughs> partner. Yeah. I can imagine, yeah. So, oh, cool. That's great. But anyway, so, so you're a partner, but you also have, you know, that you're a single mom of three, essentially grown young men, you know. So, talk a little bit about that. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> shift. Um, so There's a shift. We, uh, so I'm approaching an empty nest in the fall, but um, as the pandemic began, the status of my life at that time was, you know, running the rat race, basically commuting every day and climbing the ladder, finding clients, running the firm, uh, raising kids, dealing with all of their dramas and, you know, whatever was going on with the kids, getting them into college. Um, my mom is, is in her 80s working with her, you know, so I, I have a dog. So a lot of responsibilities on my part. And I, th I think uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was just like running at a frenetic pace all the time. And my middle son was, uh, he had just dropped out of college and he was working for his father. And uh, his father laid him off at the beginning of the pandemic. He was working for his father's residential construction business. And his father laid him off at the beginning of the pandemic, un you know, unsure of the future of the business at that point. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask whether if, uh, there was a downturn. Well, construction was kind of difficult during that time, just yeah, from the just standpoint of even getting permits. Getting the supplies, supplies and permits. And permits. <laughs> People didn't want you in their homes, yeah. you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So my, my middle son moved back in with me. My oldest son was already working full-time. He was on his way, and my youngest son was in high school, and he was online learning every day, and I was online working every day. So my middle son didn't have a job, so he's playing video games, smoking pot, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I am not going to live like this. This is not good. He needs a purpose. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, you're going to fix up the basement. Oh, so you assigned him that <laughs> that project. Yeah. Oh, okay. I figured he would feel good about himself. He's mm -hmm. he's a talented guy, and he could do it. He'd been working construction, so. And he knew how, yeah. <laughs> I figured this is his baby. He could take it and, you know, do something. And then see the results of his labor. Mm -hmm. And Great um, idea. Yeah, and... It worked well at first, but then after a while, I think he started getting old, and he would work for an hour, and then he'd go back up and play video games. And so we ended up in a two-month shouting match with each other, and I finally, I said, listen, I, I can't live like this anymore. So I basically just said, that's it. I'm packing up, and I'm going to, to Maine. We have a summer home up there. I brought my youngest son up to complete the school year online from Maine. Oh, um, wow. So you were up there for months. We were up there for four months. Wow. Yeah, for the entire summer of 2020. And then again in the summer of 2021, we were able to spend our time up there. I had another guest on the podcast who used Maine as her escape pod. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great place. It must be a escape. great place. <laughs> yeah. And it's it, so we have a, it's a family held property. We've had over 100 years, five generations. We have 30 or 40 acres of wow. um, wildflowers and things that are on a lake. But we're near the Bold Coast, which is down east Maine, and we're on the Canadian border. So we're like the last town in the U.S. before you hit Canada. And Sounds um, beautiful. It's beautiful. It's the Bay of Fundy. So it's yeah. the lar oh, yeah. largest tides in the tides, world. Yep. It's mm -hmm. all the cliffs. Flower pot rocks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we're actually east of Acadia, east of Bar Harbor, and okay. we have all these cliffs kind of to ourselves because, mm -hmm. you know, nobody ventures further than Acadia. They kind of stop there, and then they turn yeah. back and go back. Appalachian Trail cuts up through there. Yeah, the Appalachian Trail hits the center of Maine. Mm -hmm. Yep, Mount Katahdin. That's actually one of our bucket list hikes is to finish the Appalachian Trail. But anyway, so my youngest son 
was online schooling. I was working, and my oldest son decided to join us and his girlfriend as well. They were online working for their companies. My son works for uh, IBM, and my uh, his girlfriend works for 3M out of Minnesota. And so we were having a grand old time. I left my middle son at my house in New Jersey. I don't even know what he was doing. <laughs> Weren't you afraid he was going to burn the house down? <laughs> I was a little bit worried about it, but I, I just for self-preservation, I, sure. had to, I had to get out of there, you know, yeah. and let him kind of fly on his own and figure Find it his out. his own way, yeah. You know, because I, I wasn't, it was like he had this non-traditional transition into adulthood, and um, I didn't know how to guide him on that. Mm-hmm. So I basically abandoned him. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, you know, yeah. Maine was great. It was, it was, uh, you know, we would do a lot of hikes on the weekends. We would look for r- mushrooms and, and moss and balsam firs and rocks. And, you know, it was really amazing. We were trying different trails every weekend. And what I found was that it really contributed to the creative process. It made me much more creative. Mm-hmm. And the takeaway that I have out of sort of the pandemic was that my life was all work, no play, mm-hmm. you know, no balance. And my generation, I'm Generation X, we were about paying bills and being responsible. And um, my children's generation is about experiences and food and, you know, all the, the young people now are all foodies and <laughs> they're all into music and concerts and things like that. And What, are, what generation are they? Um, they're younger than millennial. What comes after millennial? Uh, Z? I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they are. I think they're a hodgepodge. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so uh, I think just that experience in Maine reali- made me realize that I can be a much more creative designer. I can be a much more creative, not only designing buildings, but designing the firm. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a lot of thinking about how to put together the firm and how to elevate our design quality and how to elevate people in the firm. And a lot of that came through the experiences that I had in Maine. And, and, you know, we would go to the local brewery, we'd pick up some fresh beer, some blueberry pie, and, you know, the rest is history. So well, I'd like to be able to keep that, <laughs> keep that going <laughs> somehow. Well, it, it's, really, it's, it's really true that, uh, yeah, you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And so many people don't realize that or or don't have the time to even realize it. So it's, it's actually an important thing to learn. It's an important thing for you to have learned. I'm going to jump back to um, talking about your involvement. And in, you had mentioned that you actually were um, on the housing board of your neighborhood. or Oh, the zoning board. The zoning board, yeah. So that's a whole different animal from... Like you're accustomed to working in a firm where you're teaming with like-minded people with like experiences and with, with like goals. So you're all working for the same thing. Something like a zoning board where you're working, how hard must that have been to make the shift to working with people who don't see, see the world the same way you do? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've been chairing our zoning board. for I've been on the zoning board for a long time and chairing mm-hmm. it for probably five years or so, and there weren't that many applications during the pandemic, but the applications that did come in, it was definitely a different experience running that uh, process online versus in person, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you can't, 
see the body language. You can't tell if people don't quite understand the application. And you're trying to make sure, as the chair, I'm the chair, I'm trying to make sure that everyone has the information that they need and that they understand it. And so my job as chair has been to distill the information that maybe the applicant comes in with to a piece that maybe the, the rest of the board would understand. And the, the board members come from all walks of life. We right, have attorneys, exactly. we have engineers, we have different people um, who have different you know, training in order to uh, sit on the board. So, you know, I, I try to figure out, make sure they understand it, and then also try to um, build consensus. Mm-hmm. You know, if I think an application is really good, I'll, I'll give my opinion and say, you know, why I think it's good. And, and then they don't have to follow my lead, but they usually do mm-hmm. because they know I know, you know, I know what I'm talking about. Well, you have the expertise. It's nice that they, that they respect that because uh, I'm on the local housing board here and... Uh, don't always understand how people think, you know, <laughs> what their mm-hmm. thought processes are. It's like, where did that come from? <laughs> it's very confusing. So i got to hand it to you. You can convince everybody to listen to the expertise. That's, yeah. that's a good thing. <laughs> We've had some interesting applications. We had um, a drug rehab clinic come in, and that was very contentious. We had a lot of people in town come out and object. They didn't want to have that in Cranberry. And I wanted to make sure as the chair that not only the town and the people had their say, but also the applicant, Mm -hmm. you know, they have a right to present. Absolutely. And, you know, and I had to kind of navigate that line between the applicant and the, and the public and, you know, making sure that each was heard. And, um, you know, I think that's, I think that's the, the job of the chair is to, you know, again, make sure everyone understands each other and, and has a voice. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same way with family situation. It's the same way with the firm situation. It's the same way everyone wants to have a voice. Everyone wants to understand what's going on and be part of a community. So mm-hmm. I use those same lessons in <laughs> all these various aspects like of my yeah, life. Yeah, that's all yeah. sewn together. That's pretty cool. Well, and um, back to, you know, self-care and, and things you've learned about caring for yourself. Uh, I was really interested to see that along with all your work and what you've been doing that you have been taking what, 40 master classes and <laughs> took up candle making and embroidery? I mean, <laughs> was that all in Maine that you did that? or? Um, well, no, I signed up for when, when the pandemic first started. I knew I had to do something, and I, had, I signed up for a one-year subscription to master class, sure. and there was nothing on TV. I mean, you sure. know, at the yeah. time, you've been through, all, through it all. There's nothing there. And uh, it was really interesting. Each class is about 10 hours. It's one-hour sessions. And at the time, they had about 80 classes available. And I literally took 40 classes. That's in like amazing. Three months. <laughs> what was, was your like, favorite <laughs> one? Uh, I love the barbecue class. That was actually one of my favorites. And then Kelly Wurstler, she's an interior designer in California. I thought hers was really interesting as well. Um, but Ken Burns had a mm. class. Ron Howard. Nice. Uh, Serena Williams had a class on tennis and teaching tennis. So it was very interesting. Um, But I also took up, uh, I did a lot of online art classes with Princeton Art Museum, with the Metropolitan Art Museum, the Penn State Alumni Association. I did take up embroidery and candle making, let's see, canning, gardening and canning. (laughs) I don't know. Canned a lot of salsa. How did you find time for all this, along with work? Um, I just, it's amazing. I'm kind of a high achiever. 
Yeah, yeah, you, you remind me of uh, Tawanda. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be busy all probably, the time. <laughs> yeah, it's probably anxiety that drives me. <laughs> I'll have to introduce you to. <laughs> She's cool, and you're cool. So, well, uh, you know, that's, I've, I've learned a lot more about you than I already knew, and I felt like I knew you kind of pretty well, but um, so any kind of takeaway that you want to um, to leave the listeners with before we sign off? Um, I think, you know, thinking about how can you help your community, how can you connect people in your community, you know, have a little dinner party and invite a couple of people who are maybe not part of the neighborhood and and you you learn about them and you find out you maybe they're quiet or they're introverted you know and and I like that I like that opportunity to connect people and to like explore who they are and find out what their voices are and and I like I like an underdog I like the one who's in the corner who's kind of quiet I like to find out what they're all about Mm -hmm. and I think that those I don't know, that spidey sense that I have about people <laughs> yeah. has served me well. Uh-huh. We found a lot of good employees with that thinking. We found a, you know good friends in the neighborhood. And I think the pandemic has maybe given me more platform to do that mm-hmm. than I had before. Because That's interesting. maybe I had more time to uh-huh. think about people and figure out ways to make the firm better, ways to connect people, ways to elevate design. So I've... I've loved the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and one of the things I think you mentioned also is that, you know, you reprioritize what, what's important. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's been a consistent thread. You know, we've all had to look at things differently, new lenses, and, uh, you know, figure out a new way of doing things. And it's, I think it's good. I think so, too. Yeah, I've really enjoyed, you know, the things I've learned in the last few years. It's like taking lemons and making lemonade out of them. Definitely. And what will the new normal be? You know, we don't know. It's it, it's added a level of excitement. And, it, it uh, has. You know, yeah. that it isn't, you know, we're not living the humdrum <laughs> routine that we were. Oh. You know, it all's new. Everything's new. And yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, congrats on making it this far and, and with the wonderful work you've been doing. It's, it's really a wonder to behold. And uh, I'm just delighted to know you. And I'm just delighted that you agreed to come and be a guest on I'm Freaking Lonely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for inviting me. And you're helping me not feel so freaking lonely. So (laughs) thanks. So anyway, it's been great reconnecting. And as ever, it's my hope that this conversation provides food for thought and that my listeners will tune in again next time when we share other people's COVID journeys. Uh, Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay connected. Thank you.